The words that uh, Chris has just read to us come within a part of a long discourse in which Jesus tells his disciples and us that he is the true vine and that all who follow him are the branches. It's an important and chock-full passage of Scripture. But I specifically want us to grasp the wonder of something that he said in verse 15. There, Jesus called us his friends. We probably take that as a commonplace. But I wonder if we know from our Bibles just how many people God had called friends before this point in time. Any suggestions? It's difficult if you're online because I can't hear what you're saying, but never mind. The fact is that God acknowledges just two men as his friends in the scriptures. I'm not saying that there weren't others, but the Bible only expressly refers to two people as friends of God. And whenever God highlights a notion in the scriptures in this way, it's to tell us something important. So today, I'm commencing the first of an occasional three-part series, looking at certain aspects of the lives of these two men that the scriptures call friends of God, and looking at what it means to be a friend of God. I hope it will become apparent that this is both relevant to our lives and also quite crucial for us as a church. The stories of these friends of God make it clear that they were also men to whom the Lord could entrust significant work. We have been called to a significant work. For none is more significant than advancing the kingdom of God. And it's his friends who most completely achieve this. Well, I'll tell you that one of the two was Moses. Any idea who the other one might have been? I'm sure you're all shouting at your TV monitors and and such like and telling me, but I can't hear that, so I'll actually have to tell you that the other is Abraham. And he was called the friend of God in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 7. Personally, I find enormous encouragement in the lives of these two men. Neither of them was perfect. Both fell into serious sin in their lives. Abraham was a liar, a cheat. He was willing to make his wife an adulteress. Moses was a murderer who oscillated between being too big for his boots and too timid to say boo to a goose. Now, that's hugely reassuring. The gospel has always been that God accepts us, not because we're perfect, but because of what Jesus has done when we turn to him in repentance and faith. He accepts us there and then, 
as we are, warts and all, because he loves us. Only after accepting us does he start the process of making us perfect. And honestly, if it wasn't that way around, I would be disqualified from having any kind of a relationship with God. And so would Moses. And so would Abraham. And I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions about yourselves. I'm also encouraged that the true blossoming of their relationship with God came when, like me, they were both old men. Age is no bar with the Lord. He doesn't throw us on the scrap heap because we've turned 40 or 50 or 70 or 80. None of us will ever face the threat of redundancy from his service. And you know, even the retirement benefits are out of this world. Not that he disdains youth. Our Heavenly Father delights in his children, whatever their age. An old friend of ours from many, many years back has written a song entitled, I'm growing up to be a child. We are always children of God, however old we become. Samuel, David, they were both on the Lord's team when they were just kids. And it's actually highly probable that Mary was only 13 or 14 when she became the mother of Jesus. But let me say at the outset that both of these friends of God, Abraham and Moses, spent many years journeying with God, simply spending time in his company, simply being with him. And you know, there's a colossally important lesson for us to learn here. I guess just about every parent knows that little phrase that small children seem to somehow inherit genetically. Whenever they're taken out in the car, they say, are we there yet? Often within five minutes of setting out. And I have to say, uh, and I stand indicted, that most wives complain that when they go on a long journey somewhere, their husband won't stop for anything until they reach their destination, especially not to ask for directions when they're lost. We always want to get somewhere rather than be on the way to somewhere. Children wish their lives away. You know what I mean? I wish it was Christmas. I wish it was my birthday. I wish it was summer. I wish it would snow. Not in summer, but I wish it would snow. I wish I was old enough to leave school, and so on and so forth. We all of us want to be at the next stage as quickly as possible. Arrival is our goal. But God's perspective is that the journey matters just as much as the arriving. For him, our time journeying together and developing our relationship with him is his goal. And we need to realign our thinking with his, focusing not on our ultimate destination in our walk with him, but on our journey with him. Our growth as Christians is always about specific changes, 
And we need to discover what the Lord wishes to change in us at the heart of a growing friendship with God is a willingness to submit to what he's doing in our lives right now and to grow in individual intimacy with our close and personal God. When Abraham was 75, and I used to think, you know, that was way off into the future. It's not that far off for me now. The Lord established a covenant with him, promising him his dearest wish, a son. But it wasn't until Abraham was 99 that his elderly wife became pregnant and their promised son, Isaac, was born. Yet throughout the 25 years, with no fulfillment of that promise, Abraham believed and obeyed God and was unshakably convinced that the Lord would indeed keep his word. What joy Abraham and Sarah experienced after waiting so long for this child of promise. Time passed, and father and son became very close as their relationship grew and deepened. His son's life meant more to Abraham than his own. All his great wealth counted for nothing against this precious gift from God. But then we read in Genesis chapter 22 and the first couple of verses, sometime later God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. I imagine we've all read this story before, but please don't let your familiarity with this story diminish the impact of those words. Can you imagine how Abraham felt? How would you feel if God clearly told you to kill the person you love most? in all the world. How could God ask such a hard thing of him? Remember, we have the benefit of hindsight. We've read the end of the story, and because of that, we know it was a test. But Abraham did not have our perspective. For him, it was simply the unequivocal command of God. After all the years of waiting for his precious son, God asked Abraham to kill his heart's desire. There was absolutely no sense to be made of it. But Abraham knew that God doesn't make mistakes, and this was undeniably what God was asking of him. Abraham had just two choices, to obey or to disobey. There was no middle road. There was no easier option. But he was so full of godly fear 
that to break the Lord's covenant was unthinkable for him. But you know what Abraham experienced in such an extreme way? We also face in different ways in our own lives. Because not one of us ever knows that God is testing us until we're on the other side of the test. We know when we've passed his test, but how many resets did we do without even knowing that we were being tested? And you know, that's why the Lord brings us into similar trying circumstances time and again, longing for us to pass his tests. But praise him for his persevering grace. He does not put a limit on how many resets he permits us. And Abraham's response challenges me. Abraham rose early in the morning. Does that hit you? Not getting up early, I usually do that. But rather the fact that there was no delay. No questioning God's goodness. No, no discussions with Sarah. No remonstrating with God. No hesitation. He obeys God without question. Not only that, don't miss the agony built into the fact of a three-day journey. It gave Abraham the time to ponder what he'd been told to do. If he was going to waver, those three days would surely expose it. When he and Isaac arrived, Abraham, verse 4, got rid of the servants so they couldn't intervene. If they had seen what happened next, they'd have probably thought, the old boys had too much sun. Let's, let's, let's just get him calmed down and well and get over all of this. And then verses 9 to 11. Abraham built an altar, bound his son, laid him on the altar, and then reached for his knife and raised it above Isaac's throat. And just as his hand began its downward plunge, at that precise moment, God spoke through an angel, stopping him when, in fact, the act had already been committed in Abraham's will. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me your son, your only dearly beloved son. James, in chapter 2 of his letter, tells us that Abraham believed God, that is, obeyed God and trusted him for the outcome. And God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. He proved his reverence and fear by acknowledging God's will to be more important than his own. The Lord knew that 
Abraham passed this test, then he would pass every test. Abraham's obedience was the key to his friendship with God. And you know, I love the rich symbolism of this story, connecting to the covenant and to the kingdom, to the history of salvation, with even the region of Moriah later being literally the site of Jerusalem, so that in Jewish tradition they can hold that the altar in the temple was built on the rock where Isaac, a young man, went to his supposed death in obedience to his father. But that's another study. Notice just now that it was when Abraham came through this test that God revealed something more about himself to Abraham. He is the Lord who provides, the Lord who sees the end from the beginning. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Now it's interesting, the whole concept of the burnt offering. What we need to understand from it is it's the offering that holds nothing back. It's totally consumed. There are other offerings where what is left is consumed by those who are in the priesthood. But there is no remnant from the burnt offering. Which is basically saying it's a total offering. It's an offering that holds absolutely nothing back. Abraham did not hold back his son. God the Father did not hold back his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh which means the Lord will provide. And do get the double meaning of that word provide. It's not just the giving of things in the way that we think of provision, but it's provision. It's seeing forward. It's seeing the end from the beginning. The Lord revealed more of himself to this humble man who had become his friend. And that's what the Lord does for his friends. He shows them things about himself that nobody else has seen. This is precisely what Jesus was saying in that discourse in the upper room. I've shown you things that no one else has been shown. But do notice that the Lord didn't reveal himself as Yahweh Jireh until after Abraham had passed his test of total obedience. It's only when we obey the Lord in the hard places, in the wilderness experiences of obedience, that God reveals himself to us as the God of all provision. The Lord told Abraham, Now that I know you fear God, and James added that he was called the friend of God, isn't that a huge contradiction? 
Can we really be friends with someone we're afraid of? Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us that there's an essential correlation between the fear of the Lord and knowing Him. So what does the fear of the Lord really mean? Well, first of all, we have to say it is absolutely not being terrified of God. Essentially, to fear God is to believe God, and to believe God is to trust Him, and to trust Him is to obey Him, regardless of the apparent consequences. So to fear God is to reverence Him, and to reverence God is to have such respect for Him that we take Him at His word, do what He says, and trust Him for the outcome, just as Abraham did with Isaac. And he was the friend of God. Psalm, chapter, Psalm 25, verse 14 tells us, Friendship with the Lord is reserved for those who fear Him. With them, He shares the secrets of the covenant. Could it be any clearer? God says He reveals His secrets to those who reverence or fear Him. What God did for Abraham after he'd passed this test of obedience, this test of fearing, was to share the secrets of his heart with him. Nobody shares the secrets of their heart with servants or with acquaintances, but with close friends. Thus the Lord only shares his heart with those who reverence him, who fear him, for those alone are his friends. Abraham's journey taught him that to be friends with God is to fear and obey him even when it looked to be costly beyond belief. He obeyed the Lord when he left the comfort of his fortified city to travel he knew not where. And that was the start of a lifelong journey of faith of obedience, of reverence, culminating when he obeyed the Lord in a matter that seemed as though it would spell the end of all his hopes and dreams and even of God's promises to him. But he learned, as we can, that when we fear him, he calls us friend and shares with us his will and the desires of his heart. We come to know him in a much more profound way, not simply knowing about him, seeing in what he does, but coming into the intimacy of knowing, yeah, let me put it this way, knowing the way he feels about things. Psalm 111 and verse 10 gives us this definition. It's a definition because it uses the Hebrew poetic device of saying the same thing in two different ways. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who follow his commandments have a good understanding. Wisdom and a good understanding are one and the same thing. Similarly, to follow his commandments 
and the fear of the Lord are one and the same thing. In essence, to fear God is to obey God. In our reading, which was actually set at the Last Supper in the upper room, once Judas had left, Jesus said in John 15, verses 14 and 15, You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. This is a beautiful and unrestricted promise of friendship with the Lord. But there is a very definite condition placed on it. You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. Remember Psalm 25, friendship with God is reserved for those who fear him, for those who obey his word unconditionally. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants or slaves. His disciples had proved faithful as slaves or servants or followers for three and a half years, a period of testing, just as with Abraham. But now a new phase, with fuller revelation of God's mind and character was beginning. I've called you friends, and God shares his plans with his friends. Of course, this has always been God's way. And if we really needed convincing about that, there's an incident in the story of Abraham that just highlights it. This is actually in Genesis chapter 18. The Lord asked his angels, Shall I keep back from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham is going to become a large and strong nation. All the nations of the world are going to find themselves blessed through him. God continued, The cries of the victims in Sodom and Gomorrah are deafening. The sin of those cities is immense. I'm going down to see for myself, see if what they're doing is as bad as it sounds. Then I'll know. The Lord then confided in Abraham that judgment was poised to fall on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham interceded for the lives of any righteous who would be found there. And I'm sure you know that in, in, in Genesis 18, Abraham pleaded with God on the basis of what he knew God to be like. And let's face it, only a friend would dare talk that way to a king or a judge with the power to execute judgment. Coming from a mere subject, such petitioning would be, well, very disrespectful, not to say highly risky. But Abraham got into a negotiation process with God and even talked God down from needing to find 50 righteous people to just finding 10. And when God went on his way to search out 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, it became obvious that the report of wickedness was absolutely true. Not even 10 could be found in either city. The Lord found only 
Lot, Abraham's nephew and his family. God showed his friend Abraham what he planned to do. He confided in Abraham. But what a contrast we see in Lot. He may have been the one found who was considered righteous, but he was also worldly. He had no more inkling of the impending judgment than the other residents of those wicked cities. Although he was deemed righteous, Lot was totally unaware of what was about to occur. And sadly, I have to say, Lot is like so many Christians today who have no proper fear of the Lord and as a result have little knowledge of what God is doing and planning. Do you see the contrast? Abraham chose a life lived God's way. Lot chose to live amid a thoroughly godless society and blended in with the crowd. Abraham reverenced God. He was God's friend. Lot lacked all but a modicum of this. He had just enough fear of the Lord to flee immediate judgment. But society around him dictated his lifestyle. Lot tried to have a foot in both camps. And if we follow his story through the Bible, we see that like all who walk the way of compromise, he was eventually plunged headlong into disaster. We cannot love the values and practices of godless society and truly be a friend of God at the same time. But please don't hear what I'm not saying. We are not to cut ourselves off from contact with the ungodly around us. For we are sent to them as the bearers of God's gospel. But we're not to be in love the world's ways. The Malkin version of the Great Commission puts it like this. Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. But anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. We are the heralds of the King of Heaven. We are his messengers. We are those who are called and commissioned and sent to take that message to all those around us who are immersed in the world's ways and yet whom God desires to see saved. I was reading a, a book a couple of years ago and I came across this question in it. It said, if you could know in advance what your epitaph would say about you, what would you actually want those who come to write it to say about you? It actually made me think about uh, an awful epitaph from a gravestone in Connecticut that mentioned Abraham. It reads like this. 
Eliza Ann has gone to rest. She now reclines at Abraham's breast. Peace at last for Eliza Ann. But not for Father Abraham. For my part, I sincerely hope that my epitaph can be inscribed. A friend of God. Friendship with the Lord is for those who fear him, who reverence him, who obey him, bringing with it a beautiful intimacy that makes all of our trials and tribulations seem as nothing in comparison. It also brings us right into the heart of God as he shares his plans with us, involves us in their outworking and just reveals himself more and more completely to us, just as he did with Abraham. My prayer is that each one of us might be known as friends of God. I certainly want to be. Father, we just ask that you would teach to us, to our hearts, all that your word has to say to us concerning friendship with you and the fear of the Lord. Lord, we so desire to be your friends. Work in our hearts and our minds and our lives, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to grant us a greater love of your will, of your word, of your purposes, and indeed more of your Holy Spirit, that we might walk before you ever more in obedience, in reverence, in love, in friendship. Because we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.